wherever you are, however you might be engaging in uh, this to the few in the room or those who are there at home, thanks for uh, slugging it out with us. And we pray all the time for you guys. Uh, we pray for our members. We pray for what's going on, those in, that we know who are struggling in business, those who we know who have lost jobs, those who we know who have found new jobs, those who we know who are ill or who have family who are ill. Continuing to pray for all of those as we continue along in uh, what is 2020, the longest year known to man, the most exhausting year known to man, and uh, we will just keep at it. I want to encourage you to stay all the way to the end. Uh, have a couple of things to share, you know, ways to serve, uh, opportunities there, as well as uh, a couple of things we're going to be doing coming up in the month of August. So please come on, hang on all the way to the end. But we're going to start a new series this morning in the book of Jonah. And I want to start just by talking about coming to faith in Christ, that when you recognize his grace toward you, and when you turn from your sin and you put your faith in Christ and his sacrifice, and the promise that your sins are forgiven, your life is restored, it changes you forever. Not just once, but changes you eternally through that move from death to life in Jesus. But funny enough, as you continue to, we say, walk with the Lord, but what we mean by that is just continue in your relationship with the Lord, because you're kind of like walking, like I'm not walking with Him. So we mean continue in your relationship with God. You realize that there are some parts of your life that are odd or wrong, and you're like, wait a minute, I've been changed, but I'm still struggling to understand how in the world to live for God. So you've likely, if you've come to faith in Jesus, you express new, you've felt the expression of new desires, new ways of living, new ways of thinking, new, uh, new habits, and you want to live differently. Perhaps you found a love for the scriptures that you had not had before. Perhaps you found a love for uh, your fellow church family that you did not know you had. Perhaps you have had a love for the nations that you didn't have before, and you see these little things changing in you. And then... There's also a good chance that just like you were before you came to the Lord, you still don't like Republicans or Democrats or Libertarians, or you still think this way about a subject, and it seems like your faith in Jesus has made no noticeable change in that. Or some other group of people, for some other reason, you don't like them either. Some other country, for some reason, you don't like them. So you've been changed kind of constitutionally. But then you still go, I'm still struggling here. I have Christ's righteousness. I've been forgiven. I have a new calling to make disciples of all nations. But you're trying to reconcile that with sometimes how you feel day in and day out. And a big part of our relationship with God that we have through Christ is learning what it means to live our lives based upon what God has revealed in Scripture and not just how we feel. That we would actually live in conformity with what we see in Scripture and not try to conform it to us and not try to live as we would want it to say. How do we respond to conflict with our boss, Tony? I don't know if any of you have a boss named Tony or Anthony. Had none of that in mind. How do you be a better friend to your neighbor, Sarah? What in the world does it mean to share my faith with my son, Levi? How do I do these things? How do you evangelize your children? 
How about when you know God has a plan for the nations because he said as much, Genesis chapter 12, rather clear, Jesus' great commission, all those centuries later, go and make disciples of all nations, and yet you think those nations are vile. You think that they are wrong. You think that they are backwards. You think that they worship the wrong things and do the wrong things and live the wrong way, and you don't want to go anywhere near it. God says, go do that. Go make disciples of all nations. And you think to yourself, I'm not going to do that. Well, here's a question for you. What might happen when we try and hide from God's call as he has revealed it and made it clear in Scripture? What might happen? How does God respond to our disobedience? How big is God's heart for this world Is there anyone or anything he does not care about? These are the types of questions we get into as we read from a small prophet. I don't mean small as in stature. I mean small as in we call it a minor prophet because it's shorter than some of those other prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Longer prophets are called major prophets because of their length. Jonah is called a minor prophet. And Jonah is an interesting prophet because it's four chapters and it's told more like a narrative and it includes poetry. So we have a prophet and the story is told over four chapters. Chapter two is straight poetry slash prayer, almost like a psalm. So we have story, prayer psalm, chapter two, story, story three and four. And it's not spoken like an oracle, like if you read Amos and it's like the words of the Lord coming to you, this person or to this king or to this nation or to this tribe. And the same thing as you read in Isaiah, speak to. So Jonah does speak to the Ninevites, but so much of Jonah is about his response and God's response and the sailor's response and the fish that shows up and Nineveh's response. And so we see all of that in four chapters. And we're going to look chapter by chapter. We're actually going to cut one verse shy out of chapter one because the last verse of chapter one and the last verse of chapter two kind of encapsulate the fish portion of Jonah. So we're going to stop right there. The fish swallows him up at the end of chapter 1 and spits him out at the end of chapter 2. So we're going to take that next week. And the first thing we're going to do this week is just kind of go verses, chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. Now, if I ask you right now, what do you know about Jonah? You might be like, well, I know Jonah, and there's a fish, and there's a country, and he runs, and there's this. Like, well, we kind of have some details about Jonah, perhaps, if you are uh, watching even today, you're familiar with the Veggie Tales Jonah, and so you know that, and you think, okay, this is, this is what it is, so anything you need to do to kind of buckle into Jonah, Jonah is often so much richer than we realize in regard to what it reveals about God, and it ends with such an interesting question that God poses to Jonah, and so kind of week by week, we're going to slowly unveil the book of Jonah as it goes. So we're not going to kind of get, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tip off things that happen in chapter four too early because as we think about the story, chapter four teaches us something that Jonah was probably feeling in chapters one, two, and three. 
And so we get to feel all of this, and how do we walk with God, and how do we deal with obedience or disobedience? And I just want to start, you actually heard uh, Lindsay read that passage. I want to start, and I just want to go through Jonah 1, 1 through 16. There will be fewer points, you often see the points kind of down below me, they're kind of right here. Uh, the fewer points that we are going to go through today, because Jonah's narrative. <clears throat> and so the point of Jonah is to kind of hear the story and understand the story and what is going on. So I'm going to read from Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, not Tarsus, Tarshish, or Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled cargo that was in the ship uh, into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and it lay down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, which were just kind of these sticks of different lengths to kind of figure out maybe what was going on. And so just like you're flipping a coin or you're spinning a wheel, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. They said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then he said to them, or they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for this great tempest, is, or that is why this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land because they didn't want Jonah to die. So they rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, so it's billowing and rolling and rocking, the lay called out to the Lord, O oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O oh Lord, have done as it is pleased. So they picked up Jonah, they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men offered the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice, or feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. That's the first part of Jonah. You might be familiar with that story. The fish has not shown up yet. 
It shows up next week as we get to see what the fish does and how its role is in both rescuing Jonah and sending, getting him back started to preach. But I want to start with just the first two verses that we see here that God is calling Jonah to the nations. Imagine that it's somewhere in the 700s BC, mid 700s, right? 750, 760, 740, just somewhere in there. The kingdom of Israel is divided because of their regular disobedience, right? So there's a northern kingdom and there's a southern kingdom. And Jonah's actually a prophet to the northern kingdom. But at the same time, he is likely in Jerusalem or around Jerusalem at this time. And Jonah sits down, flips on his iPad or turns on his TV to watch the news. And what does he see? But Assyria. Assyria is always in the news. Assyria is always making headlines. They took a new country. They wiped out a new people. They've enslaved a group. They're meddling with the election cycle. They're trying to interfere with elections and everything else that's going on. And you just think, Assyria. I'm so tired of hearing about Assyria. And in the middle of that, right as Jonah's about to Take a second bite of cornflakes, this happens. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, which was a great city in Assyria. Go to Nineveh, the great city, a large city. Call out against it, for their evil has come before me. Now, such a call like that shouldn't be surprising, but it was for Jonah. Remember Genesis 12, centuries ago, God called Abraham and promised to make him a great nation? Remember when he gave that call? And that promise has continued, and now we, even looking back, see that promise fulfilled in some ways through Jesus, and we're waiting for the return of Jesus in every tribe and tongue and language, worshiping him. That we still look for the total fulfillment of what God had spoken, but we see it so clearly now and we see where it is headed. Well, even then, for Jonah, he was to be concerned about God's name amongst the nations. And just a few decades after this, the Assyrians take the northern kingdom. And so you go, I don't want to have anything to do with those people. I don't want to see them. But God called Jonah there because God's concern has always been that the nations would hear of him. Very often we think the prophets are only for the one nation. Jonah is a prophet that teaches us that God's call and command for repentance and faith in him to, in this case, avoid judgment that is coming upon Nineveh. We go, well, the prophets are just for Israel, and Israel just needs to focus on Israel. That's not actually God's heart. Never has been. So Jonah is called to a people that he should know God wants to have faith in him, but he, Jonah, doesn't want to go. 
He wants to have nothing to do with it. So, of course, verse 3, he tries to escape God's presence like any rational or irrational person. Jonah has a plan. What does he do? He goes, what's the farthest place that I know of to escape God's presence? Verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, which was a coastal city. And he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So in a sense, though, I, I'm not even going to have my mileage right here. This is like God saying, you know, go to Tyler, and you say, I'm going to go to El Paso. Like, that's the direction that you're going. Go this way. No, I want to go that way. In fact, and I grabbed this map off of a, just a blog uh, that had it, and people aren't absolutely and abundantly sure where Tarshish was. But if you look at the map, what you're going to see is that Nineveh was a lot closer to where Jonah was than Tarshish. And they're in opposite directions. So what does Jonah want to do? He wants to get as far away from what God has asked of him as possible. And it's funny because we all have this faulty way of thinking, don't we? We all have this way of thinking, if I could somehow kind of put my head in the sand and not listen to what God said, or maybe, maybe God is geographically bound. And if I, could, if I could get out of that geography, if I could kind of get out of where he is, then I'm good. I have nothing to worry about now. I think Jonah had the same thing in mind. He wanted to get away from the presence of the Lord. But we know, as we also read in Scripture, that people write, where can I go from your presence? So Jonah was faulty here, but that's often the case for us too. Where do we try and find ways to escape God's plans? Where do we resist him? Where has he clearly asked something of us and we've said, no, remember, God asks in keeping with his character. So God's heart is always for the nations. God's desire is always for men, women, children to put their faith in him. For the Christian today, now that we have seen Jesus, it's not just enough to say God loves you and hopefully leave it at that, right? To say Jesus died for you, that the whole world may know. The ways that God speaks. We often are so concerned about what does God want for me? What does God have for me? What does God desire for me? How is this going to work? As if we want some kind of minute detail of life figured out when the things that are abundantly clear we still don't listen to. So we think if I had some kind of information about this one decision, should I turn right or should I turn left here, that somehow that would really help us when very often the things that God has made clear we still don't do. Now, here's another one, though. Perhaps you're listening today and you have not trusted Jesus, yet you heard of him. You want to resist that for some reason. You feel as if you don't, that's going to mess up your life too much. Or I've heard the message, it's just so hard to believe, hard to understand. I want to ask you this, what are you waiting for? I don't treat Jonah here as an unbeliever. Jonah was part of the nation. He was a prophet. He was commanded by God to go somewhere and to preach God's message. 
But all of us have had the experience of being a Ninevite. Evil, unliked, what we thought was unloved. Someone brings the message to us. And you'll see as Jonah kind of works itself out, you're going to see that very often the Gentiles, the unbelieving, non-Israelites are more responsive to God than Jonah is. You'll see that in the sailors, you're going to see that some in the Ninevites and in the king, and you're going to see how God is still working with Jonah, even though Jonah can be frustrated about it. So, but for the Christian today, Perhaps you are a Christian. Where do you find that you're trying to escape God's plans, things that he has made clear? What he has revealed in Scripture that you simply want to ignore or you want to flee from. When Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, and you go, no, 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 I'm really more of a local, I'm more of a local girl. That's kind of what I want to focus on. Or I'm a local guy. or I only make disciples of my family, and that's how I make disciples of the nation. Like, that's not, that's not what Jesus said. So though we all live locally somewhere, every Christian has a global call upon them to engage in making disciples of all nations. It does not mean every Christian goes somewhere like Jonah might, but it certainly means that every Christian should be concerned about the nations and how the gospel is moving amongst the nations. When we know that we're supposed to pray for people to come to know the Lord and for, to look for opportunities to share Christ with them, do we do this? Even as I was writing that a couple of weeks ago, I felt convicted to go, I, there are people in my life who need Jesus, and I pray for them, but I don't necessarily share with them. It's funny because when you know you're supposed to share Christ with somebody, you, can never, you never find yourself desiring to do things, other things more. Like, I never like vacuuming. But all of a sudden, I feel like this need to be obedient somewhere, and all of a sudden, vacuuming becomes really kind of like, I'm like, I should vacuum. You know, I should do something else. I should, be, I should distract myself. And so we try to find all these other ways to act like we're obeying when really we're not. When we read that we're to forgive others as Christ has forgiven us, but we really feel hurt by what someone else did, do we just ignore it? When we know that Christians should be generous with everything that we have, and yet we fear what happens if we give, do we still hoard? Now, everybody who is listening knows there are ways in which they are probably disobeying. And I do want to remind you of this. Only Jesus obeyed perfectly. You could always do more, but you could never do enough for God's favor. Jesus is the only one who has done everything perfectly and everything that we need for our salvation. And yet, we want to strive to be holy as He is holy, to live in the ways that He has commanded, to demonstrate that type of obedience in our interactions with one another and how we handle our business transactions, how we talk to our friends, and how we care for our spouse. In our F260 reading, we've recently read the book of Hebrews. And we have this reminder of Jesus, our great high priest, in Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. 
So when we read Jonah, and it's hard not to read ourselves into Jonah some, we need to clarify something. We can't respond with, man, I really need to do more so that God loves me more and is more for me. We need to think, where has God made himself clear, and yet I'm resisting? That's a question we can always be asking, and God is gracious and will reveal it to us. Now we're going to look, as we see Jonah fleeing, we're going to look at God's interaction in the life of Jonah and the life of the sailors, and you could say in the life of the sea, but the sea is not a life. But we're going to see what happens in this instance. Because what comes after Jonah's flight and try to go in the total opposite direction is God is being gracious, he's interacting uniquely, but it should also be encouraging that God doesn't leave, God intervenes. And God doesn't just intervene in Jonah's life, but he intervenes in the lives of the sailors. Or if you're reading in the ESV, it'll say mariners, right? Not like the sports team, but sort of. And so the sailors, I'm going to say sailors. And you'll go, okay, when I say sailors, it means mariners. But this is all tied together because you're going to look at the storm and you're going to see Jonah's response. You're going to see the sailor's response. And Jonah's response is still rather disengaged while the sailors are trying to figure out everything they possibly can. Right? Just listen to this. The Lord, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea and the ship threatened to break. This was the Lord's action. The mariners were afraid. Each cried out to his God because these are probably Gentiles, right? A coastal city. You have all kinds of maybe international or Mediterranean travel coming through. And so they weren't all Israelites there. Jonah was the Israelite. So everyone is now, because it's a highly religious people, uh, they're going, oh, we've got to cry out to our God and try and figure out what's going on. They cried out to the God, and then also along with that, they're like, we need to lighten the load so that we're not going to uh, necessarily capsize. So they're throwing stuff over in verse 5. Then in verse 6, the captain comes down to Jonah and it's like, why are you asleep? Why are you asleep? We're about to die. Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And so everyone's trying to figure out how in the world to stop this calamity except for one person, Jonah. And Jonah's the one who knows why it's there. Do you notice how in that the Gentile response appears to be more obedient than the Israelites' response? I'm sure, and I bet for everybody here, I can find an unbeliever who is more pious than you are, who is more generous than you are, who is nicer to be around than you are, who might be more hospitable than you are. That doesn't change their relationship with God. I remember in a class that I work on, they talk about depravity. I've shared this before. I really love the way they say it. Depravity means you're not as bad as you can be, but you are as bad off. You could always do worse, you could always be worse in that instance, in that the behavior you do, but you cannot actually be in a worse position with the Lord. That's how it works. So we have these Gentile mariners like, figure out what's going on. And so they cast lots because that's a way that they would try and figure out what was happening. Even, it's funny, even in the New Testament, there's a little bit of lot casting right before the Spirit comes. 
Lot fell on Jonah. So they want to know, Jonah, what's going on here? How in the world do we get out of this thing? And he goes, well, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. And they know now you're the reason this is going on. He was fleeing. Well, just imagine how helpless you are in that moment, right? You have Jonah there. You're in the middle of the sea. There's a gigantic storm. You have limited things that you can control, and they've already tried that. We're going to pray. We're going to cry out to all of our gods. We're going to throw whatever cargo we can overboard. But at the end of the day, we're at the mercy of the gods is how they're thinking about it. And Jonah's like, oh, yeah, I'm Hebrew. This is why. This is what's going on. He seems completely disinterested, but he's like, throw me overboard, and you'll be okay. It really says nothing about where Jonah's heart is in the moment. He's just kind of like, I know why this is here. Throw me overboard. It's going to be okay. Interesting, the Gentile mariners, the ship, they're interested in still preserving Jonah. They care about his life. So first, they're going to try and row, row, row their boat gently through the sea, but it doesn't work. And so they said, let us not perish for this man's life, but also don't lay on us innocent blood because he's running from you and I just do as you need to do here, Lord. And they throw Jonah overboard. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then verse 16, these men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, not to their gods, but to the Lord. And they made vows. You'll see some of this if you're in a community group and you guys discuss this. You're going to recognize a few things and I'll point out a couple. But I want you just to look at how engaged God is in this scenario. Think about the storm, for one. The storm is attention-getting, isn't it? Jonah gets passage on a cargo ship to flee, which is actually something I didn't know you could do until I was talking with Johnny and Bonnie Rowe. You could actually, even today, if you want to get fair on a cargo ship they have a couple of places where you could stay it's certainly not like a cruise but if you want to roll on a cargo ship and eat with the crew or do whatever there are a couple of uh, cargo companies that will let you get your cruise on a cargo ship so it still happens right anybody interested in a cool anniversary trip maybe a cargo ship cruise is what you're looking for but jonah as he starts to flee is interrupted by the lord by the sea. The sailors are not believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they are religious. They just don't believe in Jonah's God as they're trying to figure out what's going on. But it's interesting that at this time, they are more concerned about the Lord than Jonah appears to be. And this theme is going to happen multiple times as you go through the book. Gentiles are more interested in the Lord than Jonah. They desire to obey the Lord and his call more than Jonah. They have a greater fear for the Lord and what he might do than Jonah has. So God is intervening in the sea and God is intervening in the lives of the sailors because they're trying to now figure out what's going on. And isn't crisis a time where you start to reconsider your priorities? destruction and danger and calamity and fear and when things come upon you or you lose your job or you get ill or you're in a car accident aren't those moments where you kind of go whoa I gotta figure something out anytime your life is disrupted 
you often kind of become a little more sensitive to things. You go, hey, usual stuff's not working. I used to just try and live like this or do this or function like that, and it's just not working. I read an article recently, or saw an article recently, I think it was in Religious News Service, uh, RNS. Um, and again, forgive me for that because sometimes I'm a bad headline reader like you are too. But that people are finding their hope in this pandemic through Netflix, which would make a lot of sense, rather than the Lord. They're just trying to find ways to manage the time but not necessarily considering the Lord. When God is intervening, and when those things don't work, and they go, well, this usual stuff's not working, what do I do here? Then there's Jonah's sleep, which shows us the length that he's going to go through to stop thinking about God's call. Have you ever known you need to do something, so to try to ignore it, you fall asleep? Yeah. Have you ever gone, if I could just go to sleep, then forever amount, for whatever amount of time I'm asleep, that's not on my mind. That's such a common way to handle things you don't want to deal with. So while everyone else is panicking, Jonah is sleeping. Interesting here, and there's a quote in your community group discussion guides. If you go to our website and our <clears throat> Sunday resources page, I put a little quote there from a commentator about this. But interesting here is to consider Jesus, who was also asleep in a boat during a storm when people fleed fled but he wasn't fleeing jesus was where he was supposed to be and he calms the storm and everyone's in awe of what jesus is able to do now think about the sailors again as they talk to jonah they don't want to throw him overboard they try to save him but it doesn't work when they throw him overboard it stops and they recognize Jonah's God is different. This is all God's intervention. This is all God working it out. This is all God bringing about his end, which is always so gracious. Because one thing that I think I fear sometimes, and you might too, is that if I screw this up too much, God is doomed. And what God wants to do. I don't want to ruin what God wants to do. And there's a very gracious idea in this that God uses us to fulfill his purposes, not ours. And that God even can work out a situation that we have messed up. So Jonah disobeys, but think about it. <clears throat> Jonah disobeys, but who gets to hear about the Lord in the midst of Jonah's disobedience? The sailors. God still uses that moment. He can bring good through it in that moment. Storms certainly don't seem gracious when you're in them, but when you see what God does, you might find yourself surprised. Look at the ways God has intervened. He got Jonah's attention. It took a while, but Jonah knew what was going on, and he knew what to do about it. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, Jonah is still going to be struggling. It's not as if you get to chapter 2 and you're like, oh, Jonah's good now. No, Jonah has a heart problem just like we do when it comes to obedience and hatred of others. Jonah has an issue that he still has to work out. God is still graciously working with him in that, right? Still using Jonah even though Jonah has issues. So God is not looking for the perfect 
conduit to do that because he already has it in Jesus. He doesn't need you to be perfect. We talked last week about how when you're going to start speaking about situations, you're going to mess it up. James says as much. It's difficult to speak well about things. But God gets Jonah's attention. There are times when God shakes us out of our wrong direction, out of our disobedience. I've talked about the time in high school where I went to my youth pastor, and I just said after one evening, I looked at him and I said, I need to change. And I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what I was saying. I, I, didn't, I didn't have all those pictures out. Right? Sometimes I'm like, okay, well, hold on. Let me just be sure. Do you understand this? And do you understand that? And do you understand that? And what do you feel about the Spirit? And what do you feel about this? And we kind of go through this checklist of things, and I'm like, I don't know. All I can say right now is I heard this guy talk, and I'm coming to you, and I'm saying, I need to change. I don't have the rest of it figured out. And it's funny as we kind of exist with the Lord, and we go 10, 20, 30 years, as we forget sometimes that simple steps of obedience are significant. Simply crying out to God and going, help, <laughs> I need you. <laughs> that that has way more faith than us going, well, did you say it to the Father, through the Son and by the Son? Like, I mean, we want to get all of that right. When somebody's going, help, God, help, like the sailors are doing. No, I haven't wed, read, wed, read Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. It didn't even exist there on the boat. No, I haven't read all these scrolls. No, I don't know the history. I don't know who Abraham is, but something about you is different. God is gracious to Jonah, even though Jonah is imperfect and will continue to demonstrate his imperfection as the book keeps going. God is always trying to get attention. It was interesting, I heard one of my professor friends say this to a student, uh, I think at the end of the spring, maybe in May, and it was like, hey, prof, do you think that like, God is using COVID-19 to wake us up? And his response, I would not have come up with. I would have been like, yeah, wake up. You know, I would have said something like that. And he's like, so well, certainly that could be the case, but I wonder sometimes why we aren't woken up by birds singing. And, and by beauty, how come it has to be disaster for us to go, what's going on here? God, and this is what I realize in that, God is always showing off. He's always showing his power. And Romans chapter 1 tells us that creation demonstrates his power, but God is always showing his power. We often only attribute it to God when it seems destructive, not beautiful, but God is showing his power in beauty, too. God is showing his power in sunrises and sunsets. God is showing his power that when you go to sleep, you wake up. He's showing his power when you hear a song or you watch a movie and you're not sure why it's affecting you the way that it is, but God's showing his power in that moment. That somehow we can craft melody and lyric and music in such a way that we're just like I, something the world is away i don't know and we just kind of get undone god's always intervening like that but then i love the fact that the sailors grew in their knowledge of jonah's god and that's the beautiful thing is that jonah didn't have to get to nineveh Yet, he'll get there to start declaring. 
He could speak about it even then. <clears throat> so even as he's kind of in the midst of his, in a sense, disobedience, and in the midst of the consequences that are coming from that, he is still able to speak, and God still graciously intervenes in the lives of these sailors. And I want to say this to you, everybody. God intervenes in your life too. And I want to ask one question of you. Where is God active? Where is God active? Is he active in your sin, revealing you his son? Is he showing you you can't keep living this way? I know you're trying to figure out how to get out of the situation, but you don't have to figure out how to get out of the situation because at this point in time, remember, Jonah's thrown overboard. Jonah doesn't know what's coming next. And in fact, as you read Jonah's prayer psalm in chapter 2, Jonah still thinks he's going to die. He's sinking. And seaweed is surrounding him, and he's down, and he goes, and he even kind of talks about how he feels like his feet hitting the bottom. Sometimes we feel stuck. We feel like, I gotta fix, I gotta figure out how to get out of this, and then I'll come to God on the back end. That's not how it works. It's God asking you to confess your sins, to put your faith in Jesus, to turn to Him. There is no better time than right now. To say, I've resisted and resisted and resisted, but I cannot fix the problems I've created. I can't fix what it's done to others, and I can't fix what it's done to me. I need someone else. That someone else is Jesus. He came, and he died for you. And he's aware of the sins you have committed and the sins that you will commit and the sins that you are committing and he's aware of the consequences and his grace is real and sufficient. Perhaps, perhaps God is in a moment trying to get your attention. You've run into frustration against frustration and you haven't yet gone to the Lord and gone, what are you doing here? And I find for me that it's sometimes so pivotal because some of you are of the mentality where you're just going to kind of run through any wall that you can, however you can. You're just going to try and get through it. I'm going to go ahead and put my helmet on. I'm just going to run through this wall. And if I have to hit it 25 times, I'm going to hit it 25 times. And not once, not once have you gone, Lord, what are you doing? And even that question becomes significant for us. And there are many times where I'm trying to figure out how something's going to work. How are we going to pay for that? How are we going to do that? How are we going to figure this thing out? How are we going? to Like when we do meet, what's the best way to do it? And how many times do I have to do this? And what are the odds of this? Let me look at the stats. Let me look, uh, and we try to figure out all of these things. And I just want to ask you the question, have you actually gone to the Lord with that? And said something that becomes a prayer of mine, Lord, I don't know how this is going to work. But it's yours. You work it. How else is God active? God is active by putting you into the lives of others so that they can hear of his salvation. I want to ask you this question. There are many things that we think are coincidences. But do you think that maybe what we call a coincidence is actually us recognizing that God should recognize that God is doing something? Isn't it odd that you have some odd connection to a neighbor who just moved in? You go, oh my gosh, yeah, I know you. Yeah, like we, we, we share this person, or we have that in common, or wait a minute, we have the same career? 
our kids know each other? I didn't even know they knew each other. Oh, wait, you, you're in that sports league too? Our kids are in that. Like, have you not thought about that and gone, perhaps God has me in certain spots to speak of him. And we look at our job as a means to provide for our families, which it certainly is, but is it not also a means for us to declare his grace to those who need it? That for many of us, I don't know how many are working from home, but that for many of us, for 8, 10, 12 hours a day, we're around people who don't know the Lord? And do we not recognize, as reading Jonah chapter 1, that even though Jonah is trying to flee from the presence of the Lord, clearly he cannot. And even the job that you might, I'm going to use the H word, that you might hate, has people in it who need to know Jesus that you love. God is active. As we continue this week and we go through the next three, we're going to see very clearly that God is far more active than we realize. And that he lets us declare his praises to the world even though we often try to screw it up. That he's big enough for that. That he doesn't go, well, you, didn't, you left out this word. You messed this part up. Sorry, everyone's doomed. I want you to get comfortable with a God who's bigger than you think. Who's doing more than you think. Who is more active than you think. Who is going to work in larger ways than you anticipate. Who might even, through your disobedience bring salvation to someone else because he is gracious and he wants the world to know him. That in your head you don't go, I gotta get everything right and then I'll obey. No, you go with what is clear and I, I, this is my take, it's, it's sanctification goes. like Allow God to work out the areas where you need to be changed, transformed, and whittled down. Jonah still needed it. He needed it in chapter 2. He needed it in chapter 3. He needed it in chapter 4. And he needed it beyond. He was continually corrected by God in his understanding, in his heart, in his frustrations. Because God's gracious and he's doing much more than we think. And he's working on a much longer timeline than we think. He's so much bigger. And we can't run from him. So we need to stop trying.